This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to journalist Ayman Fett. She's going to be speaking to us about the ongoing military coup in Myanmar and the clashes that have broken out as a result of that. She's been covering the conflict from the ground from day one. She knows what she's talking about. The military has killed several people now. Clashes are continuing and most people seem to be ignoring the coup. It's a very interesting situation. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. This thing has been going on for a little while now since uh, since the military coup. Maybe if you could just go back to the start and explain what actually happened there before we talk about the protests. Why was there a military coup? How did it go down? You know, it's a little bit difficult to remember a time before the coup. Like it's kind of all just like a melded, ambiguous Already, yeah. time. Yeah, and it's all, we're thirty two days in, um, mm. so just over a month. Uh, but yeah, basically, the lead up to the coup was, you know, pretty uneventful. Um, Myanmar had its uh, election in 2020, November 2020, just a couple of days after the U.S. election, actually, and that was fairly successful. Obviously, you know, there are issues of um, voter suppression, voter intimidation, as there are in a lot of other places that are still transitioning into democracy. Um, obviously, quite a large number of ethnic minorities, especially the Rohingya, were disenfranchised because of um, laws in Myanmar that really base citizenship off of like a very specific understanding of race uh, and who belongs in the country and who doesn't. But, you know, overall, it was definitely an improvement over the 2015 election, which itself was an improvement over the 2010 election, which was the first election in 50 years. Um, so, or the first election that sort of had its election results honored in 50 years. Mm. Um, so, you know, after the votes were tabulated, there was a lot of, um, sort of discontent, uh, from the military aligned party, USDP, as well as a number of other sort of smaller parties, uh, over the landslide NLD victory. Uh, I think they won like 82% of the vote or something like that. And, you know, there were people saying that there was further fraud, that, you know, the NLD didn't handle COVID well, and therefore a lot of people were unable to vote. Um, This is complicated by the fact that the NLD, the ruling party at the time, was able to appoint its own election commission, um, essentially ensuring that whoever won, uh, someone would be bound to raise the issue of bias uh, from the election commission. Um, but, you know, for the most part, no one really thought there would be a coup. Um, you know, people talked about it in that it's possible. Um, Myanmar is uh, governed under the um, 2008 constitution, which was written by the army in order to ensure that the military had a certain amount of representation built into government um, and that, you know, they held a few key ministries, especially the ministries that control the guns. So borders, uh, the police, the army, things like that. 
Um, and everyone knew there could be a coup, and it definitely had been something that people talked about um, throughout the years, especially from the NLD side to justify why they weren't pushing for more progressive things as many of their voters wanted. But yeah, I, I think most people were very surprised uh, on February 1st, despite all of that. Right. February 1st, that's when the military uh, went in, arrested the leader, arrested several people in the party. Uh, just explain to us, how did that go down? So it's a little bit murky, but it, from reporting, what we know is that on the morning of February 1st at around 3 a.m., um, the military went to a number of key uh, government officials' homes and essentially either detained them uh, outside of their home or detained them where they were. Um, and this was especially prominent in the capital of Naypyidaw, where um, February 1st was meant to be the, the start of a new government. It was Inauguration Day. Um, and uh, members of parliament were met, had all gathered, uh, and they were meant to be sworn in. And so everyone's kind of uh, conveniently gathered uh, for the day of the coup and um, non-military aligned members of parliament were essentially put under house arrest um, and especially Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the state councillor as well as Win Miet, uh, the president of Myanmar uh, were put under house arrest and uh, since then they've been charged with a number of different crimes uh, and their trial is now ongoing. Right, and what, what have they been charged with? So they keep adding to this. So I, depending on where you're hearing this, this might be outdated. But Aung San Suu Kyi was first charged with the illegal importation of walkie-talkies. So basically a paperwork error uh, for which she is, was held in detention uh, without access to a lawyer. Uh, then after that, she was charged with... Um, violating COVID restrictions, essentially, uh, because her party supporters had gathered in a place where she was also at. And then most recently, she's been charged with incitement uh, because they found a speech that she had written, um, should she be allowed to speak to the public, uh, essentially telling people to resist uh, the coup. Right. Wow. That's some weird mix of charges there. Um, what what has been the response then since? I know there have been protests. People are very against the coup. Um, how did they accumulate? So the first day, there was no protest at all. I mean, obviously, everyone was talking about what was happening. And people were actually finding out at different times of the day what had happened and you know, varying amounts of information because the Internet was really in and out all day. Uh, I think I didn't get my phone, like my mobile data back until late in the afternoon, but I had Wi-Fi, which the majority of the country doesn't have uh, in their homes. Like mm. there's a number, like a significant pop portion of Myanmar doesn't have regular electricity in their homes. Um, so they don't, definitely don't have Wi-Fi. Uh, so, you know, people are kind of finding things out really in like short bursts of information for most people. Um, so there weren't really protests the first day. The second night, people began to bang pots and pans from their homes. And, you know, if you didn't know about it, it was a really, like, surreal experience because basically, like, suddenly you just hear, like, a citywide clamoring and, like, clanging. And you could, like, 
from my apartment downtown, you could just hear like waves of sound rolling through the city. Um, and banging of pots and pans uh, is a, a customary Burmese ritual when you move into a new house in order to rid it of uh, evil spirits. And so, uh, so you know, the people were really saying, yeah, yeah, the people were really saying like, you're evil, like not just like we don't disagree, like you're like a ghost we need to get rid of. So the pots and pans started um, and then people started coming out into the street, right? Yeah, yeah. So it took until the third or fourth day for people to come out. Um, and part of the reason for that was people were worried that their actions would then be retroactively used to charge uh, the detained with incitement, sedition, whatever. And what happened when uh, when people came out onto the street? I know it's, you know, we've seen a lot of killing already, but initially it wasn't it wasn't at that stage, right? People were pretty peaceful. Yeah, no, I mean, of the first few days, you know, obviously there were police out, but. If you saw police, it was mostly traffic police. Um, so these, and you can tell, uh, you can differentiate Myanmar police based on their uniforms. So traffic police have, I think, handcuffs. And I don't even think they have batons. They have like a whistle to like sternly whistle at you. Um, but, you know, it was mostly traffic police ensuring that, you know, people were still being able to move around. Um, there were uh, other sorts of police, uh, including police who do hold guns, who are out. But, you know, they were mostly around government buildings, public buildings, essentially being security. Uh, and, you know, weapons weren't drawn. There weren't really attempts to break up protests. Um, and there was a sort of almost festive air. Um, and you really saw people approaching the police as potential allies. Um, you heard a lot of people chanting those first few days, uh, like the people, you're the people's police, join our side. Uh, and you saw lots of people giving them flowers, snacks, water bottles. Um, and yeah, it was kind of, you know, after a year of essentially COVID restrictions and people being stuck indoors, uh, I think people really relished the opportunity to be outside. Uh, on top of the fact that they were also demonstrating for democracy. Right. And at which point did things get violent? Um, so I think by the third or fourth day of protests, the police began to, or security forces began to use uh, water cannons. Um, and then very shortly after that, a young woman was killed in Epidaw. Um the security forces have, of course, denied that they uh, that she was shot by one of their guns. Uh, the state maintains, or the military maintains, that uh, they the bullet that was used that was found um, in her head uh, wasn't from what security forces use. Um, of course, Myanmar is a country with quite strict gun control, especially in like major cities. So. Like, no one has guns here unless you are in the government's army or, you know, the Tamada, the military, or in an ethnic arms group. So it's basically impossible. Like, they're just lying and gaslighting, as they like to do. Um, yeah, and then from there on, basically, rubber bullets, tear gas, water cannons, stun grenades, flashbangs, like, all of that became kind of routine. Uh, and then we have, we've had a couple days of really violent days and then days when, you know, maybe a couple hundred people get arrested, but no one dies or just one or two people die. And 
it's gotten to a point where you kind of have to be grateful that, you know, people are only injured, only only one person died. Jesus, so it's really escalated. Who Who is doing this? Is it the police that are out there shooting people and killing people or is it the military now actually in the, in the street? So it's both. Um, at the beginning, it was people in police uniform. Um, and I phrase it that way because there's been quite a lot of accusations that it's actually military wearing police uniform. Um, although, you know, it's it's difficult to verify uh, and that there is a lot of sort of cross collaboration between them. Um, but in recent days, it has there, there has been a lot more military involvement uh, of people in military uniform out on the streets. Um, and there's also been an escalation in terms of like a show of force. Uh, yesterday, there were jets being scrambled over Mandalay, which is uh, I guess the second, uh, no, the the third largest city in Myanmar. Um, and you know we've seen tanks in the streets uh, pretty much since the beginning. Although there's a question, you know, they haven't used them. Right, but the presence there is basically telling the people, right? I mean, I think that's quite symbolic. When you see the tanks in the street, it's like the military are telling you, like, we'll, we'll do whatever we want, basically. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, they've essentially denied that they've done anything wrong. Like, you read uh, the, the state-run newspapers and it just says, you know, violent protesters, mob police officers who had to disperse them according to the law. Um, or they tell us, um, you know, on the first day, banks were closed. Uh, they said that, you know, banks were not closed. Some branches simply decided to, like, you know, t- uh, take a break that day. Um, and just really denying the reality that we all witnessed and saw. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be um, part of the course when it comes to um, authoritarian uh, military coups. Um, what What is uh, the response from the people? I know that you know, they're, they're massively outnumbered, outgunned. But I have seen some footage of the people fighting back, like throwing stones, standing in lines with kind of um, shields made out of half barrels. And then unfortunately, uh, you know, there's that footage recently where I think two people were shot immediately. They were kind of holding the line. Um, but yeah, give us an idea of how the people are, you know, at least trying to fight back. Yeah, so that there's a difference between what's happening in these sort of... Um, major cities that are heavily Bama dominated. Um, Bama is the the majority ethnic group in Myanmar. Um, And it's also the majority ethnic group of the military, which itself is also quite racist. Uh, And so there's very, there's not as much ethnic diversity in the military as there is in society. And um, what's happening in the, like these smaller cities uh, on the sort of outer edges of Myanmar, where there are ethnic armed groups. And we're seeing, a huge concentration of killings happening in the cities uh, where protesters are essentially facing off against extremely well-armed security forces with, you know, just homemade equipment. Like there's people wearing construction helmets, people wearing uh, like lab goggles, essentially, um, and then making shields out of um, like steel barrels that they find, which they then reinforce with like rubber tires, things like that. Um, And then people who have been protesting in ethnic areas, especially areas that have an ethnic armed organization presence, they've been escorted by essentially what is a um, a separate military that has been fighting in a civil war with the Myanmar military uh, for 
seven decades now. Right. You want you want about like Karen Karen rebels catching state rebels. Yeah. 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 So so they're exactly. actually participating in this, are they? Yes. Um. They've been not all of them. Uh. But. The Karen, especially, and the Kachin have been very vocal about their support for the civil disobedience movement, um, as well as for um, the rights of their people to to protest, or what they see as their people uh, to protest. Um, they've been less vocal about a, uh, returning the NLD to power. There's definitely a faction of protesters in Myanmar who are looking for a very different government um, once the the coup fails and that are not looking simply for um basically a situation in which the coup never happened right and like everyone who was elected in november kind of just takes power and then society moves on they're looking for much more representation of minority um members of parliament as well as uh their concerns being addressed right i think that would be a good time to kind of go into all of that then because so, so Myanmar was Burma, and then there's Karen rebels, Kachin rebels. Um, there's all of this, you know. There's the Rohingya that were massacred. Maybe let's go into a little bit of the history of the ethnic t- the divide in the country, if you can. Yeah, sure. Um, so, when we're talking about Myanmar, uh, it's a very new country. Uh, basically, until the British colonized it uh, this the area that we now call Myanmar this area was a bunch of different kingdoms uh, and states that were sometimes allies sometimes at war with one another and basically the boundaries that we understand today didn't come about till essentially um the 19 until 1948 basically uh and even that was a you know, hard fought for alliance that was really born out of a need to resist both uh, British colonization as well as Japanese imperialism that was happening at the time, as well as like being part of the war front um, during World War II. Uh, so you had all these sort of disparate kingdoms who weren't necessarily friends before, who had like joined together in order to resist a number of common enemies. Um, And then pretty much immediately uh, that fell apart once the common enemy was defeated uh, and the majority, the Bama majority kind of showed that they were not looking for something similar to what the uh, the U.S. has in terms of like a very federal system where individual states and regions have a lot of autonomy uh, from the federal government, but a much more Bama-dominated, center-dominated government in which minority desires and needs were kind of pushed to the side uh, or deprioritized. And so basically, like... I think just a few months or maybe just like a year after independence was declared and Myanmar became a country, the country was immediately in civil war. And that has essentially been the status quo until now. Right. And so there's a split between what, like ethnic Burmese uh, in the country? Yeah, yeah. So there's ethnic Bama. um, And, you know, officially there's 135 different ethnic groups, uh, 136, if you want to include the Rohingya, who are not considered to be uh, an ethnic 
you know, a specific ethnic group and, you know, more or less depending on how individual people actually identify. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's an extremely diverse region with uh, a lot of different languages being spoken, a lot of different religions and religious practices being used. And so what we basically saw in the last uh, 70 years was a process that scholars have termed Burmanization, where like sort of traditional Burmese life was imposed upon all of these groups as the correct and like superior way of being. Right. Um, and the, uh, the the former president, so she was, everybody, you know, thought she was um, kind of a reformer, you know, going forward, she seemed progressive. I think she won like a Nobel Peace Prize, not that that means anything, you know, but she she was actually in charge when the Rohingya massacres, when the genocide happened, right? Yeah, so her title is actually state counselor. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, so under Myanmar's constitution, which again is racist, um, you cannot be president if you have a foreign family member. Um, so because she married a British person um, and has two foreign national sons, I think they're both uh, UK citizens, um, she is disqualified from being president. And the her parliament or the NLD parliament that won in 2015 essentially created a role for her above the president and essentially made a loophole. Um, yeah, but I think that loophole is a really good window into how she kind of thinks in that one of her big things is rule of law uh, and, you know, really reforming laws if you don't agree with them, but, you know, pressing the need that we need to follow laws. Yet when it comes to something that she wanted, uh, that was suddenly out the window and you were able to find loopholes and figure it out. And with the Rohingya, I think we saw something similar in that you know, she's not technically responsible for what happened. Um, the military is not under her control. Uh, and yet she kind of just fell back on this idea of, well, some of them uh, were attacking the military or some of them had uh, crossed the border without document proper documentation. Um, and like, I don't have any official control over the military, so this has nothing to do with me. And, you know, the military can and should act according to the rule of law. Yeah, basically tried to swerve all responsibility. And as we know, there were horrific massacres carried out. So are the people then protesting, would you say it's we don't want the military in charge? We don't want to lose democracy, which, of course, they now have um, with a military coup. Or is it, you know, oh, we really want the old party back? I mean, to me, it sounds more like people just don't want the military in charge. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the main fact divides in the protest movement. And it's something that they're going to need to resolve sooner or later or face a fracturing. But, you know, pretty much everyone in the country, not everyone, but a good majority of the country is united in that they don't want to live in the military dictatorship. Um, and, you know, despite all criticisms of Aung San Suu Kyi, the NLD, like, it will only get worse for ethnic minorities under a military dictatorship, right? There's no universe in which military rule will be better for the Rohingya, for example. Yeah, literally um, never does it go better when the military yeah. is in charge. There was quite a lot of international reaction. Uh, I mean, obviously not from governments, but 
at the very beginning of the coup, there were quite a number of people who were like, well, isn't she the one who like excused it? And it's like, well, yes, but they're the ones who killed them. Yeah. Like, it, we still want democracy. Like, democracy is still better, or at least like, you know, uh, democratic authoritarianism, as I like to call it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're electing authority. Like, we're just, you know, if people want to choose which authoritarian they get to live under. Uh, and the vast majority of the public prefer the NLD over anyone else, including the military. But um, there has been, especially in this younger generation, a really strong push towards abolishing the 2008 constitution and establishing a federal democratic union. And at the very beginning of the protest, you didn't hear any of that kind of language. The first few days of the protests, you heard people saying, free on Sesuji, uh, release our mother. Um, down with the military. And now you're hearing very different chants from the people. Um, you know, you're hearing people talk about uh, the constitution. You're hearing people apologizing about uh, what they did or said or believed or the way in which they were silent during the Rohingya crisis. Um, and you see a lot of people, especially young people, forging solidarity across ethnic lines. And today, um, one of the main groups kind of vying for leadership in the civil disobedience movement has said that they support abolishing the 2008 constitution. Wow. So that, that's actually incredible. That's excellent that they're forging these kind of lines across ethnic uh, groups, specifically when you consider the history of the country. Um, do you think, though, that they're, that they're going to keep going? Like, is the steam still there? Because them versus the military, I mean, it doesn't look good from the outside. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I think the CDM movement, the civil dissent, well, CDM, I guess, uh, has a lot of potential. And, you know, Myanmar was under military dictatorship for 50 years uh, and people were used to going without. Uh, and even under the NLD, a lot of people went without, you know, things have improved um, and a middle class was starting to get built, but the poor were still very poor. Um, and I think the energy in the protest movement now, like people are willing to sacrifice now in order to ensure that we don't see another 50 years of this. Um, so are, are you seeing like factions forming on the ground? Like I don't, I'm not saying like, oh, they're militias forming, but you know, I've, I've a bit of experience covering things like this. And generally as things go on, you do see you know, more hardline factions start to form in, in these resistance groups. Yeah, I mean, there's literal militias on the ground here, right? Like we have uh, a handful of people with actual guns and military experience who have declared war in the past uh, uh, on the, the Myanmar government or uh, against the military, at least. Um, but yeah, I think there are definitely people who are beginning to question uh, the efficacy of nonviolence resistance. Um, and there's also a very troubling movement towards uh, punishment and revenge. Uh, that's not necessarily physically violent, uh, but are targeting people who aren't directly involved in the military. So for example, um, there is now a movement towards social shaming uh, and that's sort of their word for it. 
um, where they're targeting the children and grandchildren and relatives of people who are either police or are in the military uh, for public shaming, for firing from their jobs, um, just any sort of, you know, quote unquote, non-violence. Uh, punishment. What kind of laws have the mili- has the military brought in? I know it's a coup, but have they said anything specifically yet, you know, on changing how the country is run other than the military runs it? Yeah. Um, so they have a two-pronged strategy. One is to continue to use old laws. Uh, Myanmar has quite a lot of very archaic laws that the NLD, as well as the previous administration, uh, which was military aligned, but did roll back quite a lot of the more obviously oppressive things like uh, formal censorship uh, was abolished. Um, and, you know, you no longer had to like submit every single thing you were going to print before it went out to print. Uh, it was kind of just, you could still be sued for defamation uh, if you, even if you were saying a true fact about someone and had photographic evidence. Um so a lot of the over 1,000 people who are now being prosecuted uh, for something related to the coup are being prosecuted under old laws, exist, pre-existing laws. Uh, but the military has introduced amendments to uh, especially telecommunication laws in order to make VPNs essentially illegal, uh, as well as uh, just other ways in which they can criminalize uh, dissent as well as access to information. So basically the government, it seems to me, they have this plan to just turn the whole country into, again, a brutal kind of dictatorship. The military will run it and they're going to stop free speech and stop um, access for journalists by the sound of it. Yeah, it, it sounds like that's their goal. And I mean, I also wouldn't call them the government yet in that they're having a very hard time getting anyone to obey their orders who aren't uh, police or military at the moment. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, generally, when when there's a military coup, it seems to be a little better organised than what's been happening here in Myanmar. Um, Do you think the people are actually, do you think they have a chance in making the military at least back down to some level? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, right now, we have an institution that has almost no control over the public, right? Like, you know, obviously they've killed people and obviously they've been able to force protesters to either retreat or move around. But technically the country's under martial law right now. Mm. It is supposed to be illegal for gatherings of more than five people to happen um, and for people to be outside their homes between the hours of, I think, 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. But, you know, you see in many places around the country that people are holding candlelight vigils uh, in the evenings and, and in the nights you know, clearly past the 8 a.m. curfew or 8 p.m. curfew, I mean. Um, And, you know, with the process, you can clearly see that people are congregating um, and some people are just living their like normal lives and just like having dinner parties or whatever, (laughs) even though there's both the coup and like a global pandemic. um, Some people don't seem to be affected by any of it. Uh, But yeah, you know, like, can you really call yourself the government if most international bodies aren't recognizing you? Uh, your foreign uh, missions are, some of them are an open revolt. Like we've had diplomats who openly stated that they won't answer to anyone who wasn't uh, elected. Um, and like no one in the country obeys your orders. That is interesting. Um, is is there like one specific person that orchestrated this coup that we know about? So, you know, most 
people understand that uh, Minal Line is the commander in chief of the military, and he is sort of at the top of the pyramid in terms of uh, the hierarchy of people with guns in the country. Um, you know, some people kind of speculate that he orchestrated this because he is meant to retire this year. Actually, he he sort of ages into, you know, uh, pensionhood, mm. um, and you know he. It's always a very difficult time when authoritarian-minded people who are at the height of their power are suddenly faced with essentially becoming like an old man collecting a pension check, right? Um, so there are theories that he did this because he it's very dangerous for him essentially to retire um, and that as an authoritarian, like it's much better to die in power than it is to, to retire and hand over power to someone else. You know, who knows? who would do what to you when you don't have power anymore. Um, some people alternatively believe that he really wanted to be president of Myanmar um, and thought he had a good chance. Um, and that, especially because the NLD was being criticized so heavily around their, their reaction to COVID and how they handled it um, and how they were organizing the election, that the military would actually get more votes in the 2020 election. and kind of uh, reflect what we see in a lot of other countries that have transitioned to democracy. And it kind of oscillates between like neoliberal disappointment and like authoritarian regime. And they kind of just swing back and forth between those two. Um, yeah, so there's quite a lot of theories floating around, but Minna Line is at the center of all of them. Right, right. And how politically involved are the youth? You know, I hate to use that term. I'm 31 now, I'm an old man. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like the youth <laughs> groups, like they seem to be pretty politically aware. I've even seen like anarchists coming out onto the street, you know, of course, leading the kind of militant resistance um, in some places. Uh, I mean, yeah, how, how aware are they politically? How active are they? So if you're worried about being old, you should come to Myanmar. Um, here, you're considered a youth until you're 35. <laughs> um, and you're not really considered qualified for office till well into your 40s and 50s. Um, I think Aung San Suu Kyi is 72, I think. Uh, I might be off by a couple of years there. And Men Online uh, is in the 60s. Um, so, you know, come to Myanmar, uh, there's a coup, but you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the youth are definitely very politically aware. Uh, and I think there's also quite a lot of good political education that's been going on as well. Um, the youth are definitely the ones who are leading, especially the sort of inter-ethnic solidarity. Um, and Myanmar has always had its most progressive groups be youth groups. Um, in 1988, the uprising against the military rule was led by college students. Um, and now you're seeing a lot of very young people and it's also reflected in the death counts. You know, there's quite a number of people who were killed who were like under 21. Um, who are out sort of in the streets in these battlefields um, and encouraging older people to join. Um, and a lot of the people who are sort of make up like the backbone of the disobedience movement are civil servants who, you know, are of all ages, but tend to be a little bit older since it's more of a like stable career kind of jobs and the youth tend to job hop. Um, yeah, they, 
there's a lot of youth engagement um, and they're really leading the conversation right now, I would say. Yeah, one thing as well that I noticed just watching footage and, and looking at images, it seems that there's quite a lot of uh, young women participating as well, which, you know, I think is always a positive thing when you see, you know, both men and women politically active, you know, defending their rights out there on the street like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's been a lot of women participating uh, and I think... It might not be quite as visible to an international audience, but if you look at how the women are dressed, uh, you can tell that they are also repping their ethnic groups. So you, what you're not, what you're seeing is not only that quite a number of young women are participating, but women from ethnic minority groups who either themselves would have experienced this or would have family members who've experienced brutality at the hands of the military. Um, you know, this is an institution that is has been accused of using rape as a weapon of war for decades. Mm -hmm. So these women are part of a group that have been targeted for sexual violence for decades. Uh, and they're at the forefront and marking themselves as being part of that group. That is amazing to hear, actually. Um, and in terms of the uh, armed component, I mean, I don't want to be dramatic or anything, but do you think it's possible that this could turn into a bigger scale civil war, like more centrally? Um, in the cities, probably not. I mean, there is currently ongoing civil war. And like, despite all the protests and the military and police and stuff being very preoccupied with that, there's still also currently conflict happening in uh, ethnic regions or ethnic minority regions. Um, uh, there was shelling uh, reported a few days ago that displaced uh, over a thousand people. And since the beginning of 2021, thousands of people have been displaced uh, because of skirmishes, shelling, uh, and just other sorts of uh, clashes between the Myanmar military, as well as ethnic armed groups. So, you know, what we're seeing in ethnic areas is that the armed uh, protesters, members of ethnic armed organizations are not engaging in violence. They're simply there to provide protection, or at least that's the role they've been playing so far. Uh, and in the center, we haven't really seen protesters pick up any kind of arms and, you know, there aren't that many arms in the center of the country right now, at least. So it's more rural still, would you say? Yeah, yeah, it's more rural. And, you know, Myanmar's had a very long history of nonviolent resistance. Um, and the the people who are leading the civil disobedience movement, as well as SSG, as well as uh, elected officials who formed a, a sort of interim quasi-government committee uh, have also really advocated for nonviolence, and that's really the majority view right now. Right, but we have already seen a military kill. My worry is that watching it, I just think the more the people are like, no, we're not having it, I just think that, I hope I'm wrong, but it does seem to be only a matter of time before the military come out and just start really massacring people in the centre, in the cities, you know what I mean? Is, th is that a worry amongst the people? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been a worry since the very first day. Um, so Yangon was the site of a massacre, just like you described, in 1988. Um, anywhere between, I think the military said 95, and like 
thousands were killed in a matter of just a couple of days in Yangon. Like they just opened fire on on gathered protesters. Um, and yeah, people have been very, very concerned that it's only a matter of time till that happens again. And I think that's been informing a lot of these sort of barricades uh, that people have been building. Uh, like they're prepared for that eventuality. Yeah, that is a grim prospect. Um, going forward, you've been covering this on the ground, right? You're a journalist. How how hard have you found that? Are you find, finding that they're restricting the press yet or, or is it kind of still open at the moment? So the first couple days of the protests, uh, every journalist I knew stopped sleeping in their own home. Wow. There were rumors going around that, you know, now that they've gotten the political leaders, they're coming for the journalists and the activists next. And so basically all my friends uh, stopped sleeping in their own homes and began to either either relocated to like a safe house or were just moving around quite a lot. Um, but we didn't see that kind of mass arrest happen. Um, and I think journalists are a little bit less worried about that now, although uh, 31 journalists have been arrested so far. Uh, most of them have been released. Uh, but about half of them have been charged uh, with incitement, sedition, you know, defamation, the same sort of stuff they normally like to charge journalists with. Um, and Myanmar has, according to a, a journalist safety organization I've talked to, about 3,000 journalists. So 1% of all journalists have been arrested since the coup began. Uh, so, you know, it's a really high amount, um, and it's as clearly escalating. And just a few nights ago, uh, a journalist from the DVB was taken from his home, uh, during a night raid, whereas all the other journalists were taken while they were doing their jobs, some of whom weren't wearing, uh, press jackets or vests or anything, mm. uh, because they thought, they feared they would be targeted. Um, so yeah, it's, it's safety is definitely a concern, uh, and, I don't think anyone is under the illusion that if the military continues to be able to enact power, that they won't eventually come for all of us. Yeah, without a doubt, I would say. However, saying that, it, it to me sounds like quite a sloppy military coup. Like generally when there's a military coup, they take over the outlets, you know, they take over the news channels, they start immediately arresting reporters. Um, why do you think it is? is? Is it that they don't have enough resources? Is it that it was just badly organized or, or it was rushed? Like, why, why is it so sloppy? Or at least it seems that way. So there's a couple of different theories. Um, I think my favorite theory is that they were trying to replicate what they've seen in Thailand uh, with their repeated coups of, you know, a coup that doesn't really shake up society at least not in the same to like the level that we've, we've seen in Myanmar. I think that's what they were hoping for. Uh, a coup in which the military take over power and, you know, the politically we become a little bit more repressed, but, you know, for government or for business, it's, you know, business as usual and the oil companies stay and the foreign direct investment stays and the country continues to you know, be a place from which the elites can extract uh, very unethical amounts of wealth and hoard it. Um, yeah, and then kind of, you know, there might be some protests, but nothing sort of earth-shaking the way that we've seen here. Um, and 
I I like that theory and I subscribe to that theory because in the days following the coup, the the Myanmar military reached out to uh, Prime Minister Prime Minister uh, Prayut of Thailand uh, to ask for his assistance in establishing a flourishing democracy, as they call Thailand. Um, and I think it really indicated to me uh, that they were hoping for a Thai-like outcome from the coup. But it didn't go that way for them. No, <laughs> clearly not. <laughs> um, and how how are you feeling as a reporter on the ground there? What's the kind of general feel amongst the people, um, specifically in terms of when people are getting killed, when people are getting attacked? Like, I've seen it really demoralise a movement or actually just spur it on. Like, either, either way can happen. What's your general feeling? My general feeling is that people are getting spurred on. Uh, both in the good and bad sense. Uh, like I've seen people say, you know, these people, like these kids won't have died in vain. You know, we're going to build something beautiful, something inclusive, something like right, some, now. A, a, yeah, a place where so, something like this could never happen again because we'll build institutions that won't allow it to happen. Uh, and I've also seen people advocating that the UN kidnap the children of generals uh, and hold them ransom uh, or like torture them until they decide to give up power. And so, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag, but people are definitely not deterred. And I think the international community shouldn't take um, the dwindling number of people out in the streets. I mean, there's still thousands out in the streets, but you know, like you shouldn't take, People shouldn't take the fact that like Myanmar went from millions of people on the street to like tens or hundreds of thousands as a sign that the protest movement is diminishing because the street protests aren't the main part. Like it's the sexy part, well, mm. you know, sexy for news people part that, you know, tell especially like television likes to cover. But like the backbone of this movement is getting uh, government workers to not obey the military regime, right? It's to essentially prevent them from being able to govern. Uh, and that's that's the goal. Like the street protests are simply one part of how people are hoping to get there. That's clever. So they're trying to like cripple the infrastructure basically uh, from the inside, I guess. How is that going? Um, it's going. Uh, there's been some victories. Um, so Myanmar, like... They were essentially able to stop the central bank from functioning for quite a number of days. Um, and doctors have largely, and medical staff have largely left government uh, institutions and have started setting up like free uh, field clinics. Um, a lot of doctors are just following protesters around now, understandably. And many of them just have like taken uh, government supplies with them. Like there's just like, ambulances that are being driven around following protests from workers like medical staff who are like supposed to be striking but they're still using you know all these facilities and stuff um and what else um quite a number of police officers have have essentially defected um right now the count is around 600 uh and then wow. some military some soldiers have also defected um not many but some have started too um, so yeah, like you see civil servants and Myanmar because of, you know, it's colonial history is, has a very, very large civil service. Like a lot of 
people in Myanmar, like a very large portion of the population work in government service. Good old Britain throwback, isn't it? Um, right. So <laughs> in, in terms of going forward, uh, you know, how do you think this is going to progress? I know you can't really predict it, but right now, how, how are you seeing it? You know, what do you think is going to happen? Um, yeah, so I think um, this committee that I talked about earlier, the committee committee representing Bidang Zulfata, um, a committee of elected MPs, will likely uh, gain more uh, authority and legitimacy as time goes on. Um, they started appointing ministers um, and have started to make overtures to show that even though it's a heavily... NLD dominated body that they are listening to what people are saying, um, especially the more progressive wing of the movement, and are willing to uh, incorporate those goals into what they're trying to do. Um, and that's and that's you know part of why I think um, they've added the demand of um, or they've added the goal of abolishing the 2008 constitution, uh, where that definitely was not part of their language even a week ago mm. um and that you know i think there might be other groups that kind of gain the followership in terms of you know who kind of gets to decide the main direction of the civil disobedience movement and hopefully everyone will work together and bring down uh the military's regime but there's also this distinct possibility if people don't stay united and stay focused and work towards something better than what we had before that, that, you know, the movement fractures or we end up in a situation where another election is held uh, in a year, which is what the regime has been pushing for, uh, in which, you know, all of the NLD essentially is disqualified and we have essentially a Cambodian style election in which, you know, the outcome is pretty certain uh, that the people with guns are going to continue to be in power and it's going to, at least at a very casual glance, look like it was democratically elected. Mm. And wh where, where is the leader now? Is she actually in prison or is she under house arrest or what? Um, yeah, uh, as far as we understand, she's under house arrest. She was taken from her home in Nebidaw, uh after her arrest or like... At some point after her arrest, she was taken from her home uh, where she was being held at under house arrest. And she's understood to also be under house arrest now and not in prison. Um, she hasn't been able to meet with her lawyer, but he was able to attend her hearing uh, virtually and said that she did seem healthy, uh, which, you know, is would be difficult, I think, for someone in their 70s if they were in a prison. Yeah, yeah, well, there's that at least, I guess. Um, okay, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else you want to mention before we go? Uh, no, this was a pleasure. Um, where, where can people find you on social media and follow your work if they want to? Uh, so I tweet a lot. I didn't used to. Um, I think I tweeted all of 100 times before this coup started, and I'm at like eight or, or 900 tweets now. Wow. Um, but they can, people can follow me at the T H E underscore Amen. That my full name. Um, yeah. And I became an accidental journalist or not an accidental journalist, but 
I had retired from journalism, but then a coup happened. So here I am. <laughs> there you are. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you. Have a good day. And you, speak soon. That was journalist Ayman Fett speaking about the ongoing military coup in Myanmar and the people that are resisting the uh, authoritarianism of the uh, military there. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. Or if you don't like Patreon, it's a weird buggy platform. You know, I don't blame you. Some people don't like it. Uh, go to popularfront.co slash support. But generally, the Patreon is the best way to get um, benefits for the subscription. So you get... Uh, Bonus episodes, at least two a month, uh, access to the community discord, narrated articles as a whole series, telling people how to be a report without having to go to J school. Um, loads of stuff there. Definitely check it out. Patreon.com slash popular front. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. The episode's also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core House. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get your prints at propagandopolis.com and use the code POPULARFRONT10 for 10% off. Our new documentary, Ghosts of Karabakh, where we've been reporting from the front lines in Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, uh, covering the very tense ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, from the Armenian side because um, we weren't allowed to go to Azerbaijan. It's it's an authoritarian country. You can only report how they want you to report. So we only did it from the uh, Armenian side. We only could. So if you go to um, youtube.com slash popular front, that is out now. It's doing well. People are sharing it. Thank you all very much. Check it out. Have a look. Um, shout out to Johnny Pickup. He filmed all of that. Really, really good work. It's looking nice. Uh, so yeah, subscribe to us there, youtube.com slash popular front. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash popular front co. Instagram is at popular.front. Uh, the website is www.popularfront.co. You'll see everything there. If you want to follow me, it's uh, at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N on social medias. My website is jakehanrahan.com. Check out my work there if you like. Uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. See his music at... See his music, listen to his music at samblackpf.com. Thank you very much to the high tier Patreons. They are A. Nickel, Manny, Travis Lieberman, Sky Alexander, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, Bandit666, MJ, K. Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, C. O'Donnell. Adam H, Ryan Barbadillo, Damian Boyd, Larson8669, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamond Steen, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Taylor Kidd, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, 
Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Helen DeGenerate, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawaiz, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Sebastian, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Moritz Zumbal. Thank you all very much. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popular front or if you prefer page uh, popular front.co slash support. Mm-hmm.